On July 19, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. took off from the Essex County Airport in New Jersey, destined for the Martha's Vineyard Airport in Massachusetts. He was the pilot of a small plane. That plane took off at about 8.48 p.m. And soon after takeoff, the sun set and the plane entered into hazy conditions. At 9.41 p.m., about an hour later, that plane crashed into the Atlantic Ocean, taking the life of John F. Kennedy Jr., his spouse, and his sister-in-law. Now, I was talking about this, this incident with my little brother. Well, I say little. He's 6'3", 240. So my younger brother. So I'm going to talk with him about it because he's, a, he's an engineer at Boeing, and he's also an ex-pilot for the U.S. military. He knows how to fly the Apache helicopter. So he knows a little bit about flight. And what he was explaining to me is that this tragedy was likely caused by what's known as a vestibular illusion. A vestibular illusion. Now, this happens when pilots enter into conditions like hazy, cloudy conditions where they lose all visual frames of reference, things like the horizon that tells them where level is. And when you find yourself in that place, your, your, your body and your senses can begin to play tricks on you. So turn for long enough, and the turn will begin to feel level. Then if you go back to level, the level can feel like you're turning. The same is true for going up and level, level to down, which is why pilots are trained to fly by instrument because they can't always trust what their bodies and their senses are telling them. Now, unfortunately, on that night, it turns out that JFK Jr., he was not trained to fly by instrument. So it's very likely that he thought he was flying straight to his destination when in fact, he was slowly spiraling down towards the ocean below. Now I share this because part of the reason that we come here on a Sunday morning is for instrument training because like that episode, we also can't always trust our senses. Now, if you are new with us this morning or you haven't been here for the last few months, my name's Tom. I'm an elder here at LAFC. We've been in the book of James. We're gonna go back there again today. So if you don't have a Bible, you're gonna need one. We're gonna be in James chapter two. Our ushers will be happy to provide you with one. And if you weren't with us, one of the things we looked at from chapter one is how easy it is for us to become deceived, to live under illusion, to not see things the way they truly are. And the two things we looked at that put us underneath of these sorts of deceptions would be our own sin nature and also the world that we live in. Which is why the Christian must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Because we can't always trust our sight. We can't always trust what our natural selves are telling us. But through faith, we can believe with conviction things that we can't actually see and, and live them out in our actions. Now, today we're going to be looking at something that can happen when you live by sight and not by faith. We're going to be looking at the, the topic of favoritism. And we're just, before we get into the word here, we're going to define favoritism as judging people by their outward circumstances rather than their intrinsic merit. Judging people by their outward circumstances, what you can see with your natural eyes, rather than by their intrinsic merit. So judging by what you can see. So that's where we're going to head. You go ahead and open up your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1. 
And then when I finish reading this passage, I'm gonna say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm gonna say that because that is something that can only be perceived by faith. You see, what's in this book can, can only, is only known to us because God gave it to us. What we read and hear can't be perceived in totality by the natural world that we live in, by creation. There's things that can be seen about God in creation, but only this, this word from the Lord, can reveal to us who he truly is and who we are in him. So when I finish, I'm gonna say, this is the word of the Lord to which I'd ask you to respond after verse 13 with thanks be to God. So starting in verse one. My brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor man say, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So this is a longer passage. It's one of the longer ones that we're gonna be in as we work through our series in James. So let me just tell you in a nutshell what I think James and the Holy Spirit are trying to say here. I think what they're saying is that genuine faith in Jesus Christ is confirmed by acts of love and mercy and does not show favoritism, okay? Genuine faith in Jesus Christ is confirmed by acts of love and mercy and does not show favoritism. Now, mercy is a word that we don't use too often. So let me just throw a definition out there for this one as well. Mercy means, according to Strong's Dictionary, kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted, joined with a desire to bring them relief, okay? You see someone who's afflicted, you desire good for them, you desire to bring them relief. That's mercy, so this is, where, this is where we're headed this morning. Let's get started in verse one. Now, verse one is one of those times where God's intent as communicated in the original Greek is just a little bit clearer in other translations than the one that we typically use here on a Sunday morning. So we're gonna look at verse one uh, from a different translation here for a moment. I'm gonna have them both on the screens here beside me. Put them side by side. Let me read um, from the NASB, another very reliable English translation of the original Greek. It says, my brothers and sisters, 
Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, your immediate impression of these two is probably they, they're pretty similar, and they, and they really are. These are both very trustworthy English translations. But there is a little bit of a difference. You can see in the first line of the NASB, he says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Whereas in the NIV, it just says believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ shouldn't do this. Now, this might seem trivial, but let me explain to you why I think that actually looking at this saying, do not hold your faith, is an important distinction for us to make. Now, first, the first importance of this is that the, the section of Scripture, if we were reading through James chapter 1 and chapter 2 all together this morning, we would see that faith is a primary theme in this part of the book. And so one very simple reason to put this up here is just to show you that in the Greek, James uses the word faith. It's tied together with things that we have been reading for the last few weeks and we're gonna continue talking about in the next few weeks. It was in James chapter one, verse six, James chapter one, verse three. We're gonna see it again for the whole second half of chapter two. That's the first reason to, to point this out. But perhaps more importantly, the phrase do not hold the faith actually makes the way we hold faith part of the command. Can you see that? You see, in, in, the, first, in the first way of, of organizing this, believers is a, very, is a very good way to translate this. It's talking about more who we are. This defines who we are, those people who hold the faith. But in the Greek, it's saying how you hold the faith is part of the command. It's part of James's instruction for us. And we don't want that to be hidden as we approach this text. And this is extremely important for us to understand as we head into the latter part of James. Now, you may be thinking I'm kind of losing my way up here. This might be just semantics, right? So let me just kind of bring it back down to earth, give you a little illustration to try and show you why I think this is important. So suppose I said to you, don't eat croutons, all right? So most of you, I mean, those of you who are gluten-free, like, all right, I'm already not doing that. But for most of you, would be like, what does that command mean? Well, it means, okay, if I see croutons, I shouldn't eat them. Now, what if instead I said, when you eat a salad, don't eat it with croutons. All right, now, now it's a little bit different. Our focus is no longer on the croutons. Our focus is now on a, on a croutonless salad, all right, a salad without croutons. But the object of our focus is in the right spot, and that's what we don't wanna miss as we get into this part of James. You see, there, our focus is supposed to be on the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ, if we were to just focus on the command, if we're just only focused on don't show favoritism, it would lead our thinking down a, a moralistic and legalistic type of thinking, which is of no use to us. But instead, what James is saying is that as you hold the faith, that is the primary command. The no favoritism secondary. That's the primary thing. And as we go in James chapter three, four, and five, which is filled with commands, it's important for us to keep our focus on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and then as we conform to him, we will see that he is not compatible with sinful behaviors like favoritism, all right? So this is us just living out new realities that we just, that we just sung about. So, <clears throat> 
Let's talk about favoritism now. Let's actually dig into the text here. Uh, we're gonna start in verses two. We're gonna look at verses two through four. It's James chapter two, two to four. Suppose a man, let me just stop for a second. So this word suppose here, uh, this is not a necessarily a specific situation that James is speaking into. I just wanna point that out. It's a little bit more like a parable, bit of a story. It's not like some of Paul's letters where he's like, yo, Yudia, Syntyche, quit that, stop fighting. No, this is just more hypothetical. He's trying to help us understand what this can possibly look like, just as an example. So suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring or fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes come, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the first thing I want you to notice here is, is where, where we're located in this story. It says in verse two that we're at the meeting. Now this word is the word synagogue, which is not a word we're gonna use very much, but if you remember where we're at in this story, in this letter, this letter is written to the, the very early church, which at the time was primarily Jewish. So when they would gather together, they would gather together at the synagogue. Now, it's not likely that they were actually at the physical synagogue. It's possible, but maybe not likely given the persecution circumstances. But what this speaks to for us is that it's already becoming a reality in the early church that church is not centrally located in a location. It's simply where the people of God gather together. It's where we meet. So he's saying, when you meet together, this would be our, this would be our meeting here, Sunday morning, when the church is coming together, do this, don't do this. That's our, that's our context. And what, he's, what he then goes on to describe is a situation where you have two people walk in one wearing fine clothes and one wearing not so nice clothes. And then we have our a hypothetical churchgoer apparently sees these two different people and shows them to different seats based on what they can observe, based on essentially what they're wearing. And James actually goes out of his way here, it seems like, to not call the rich guy rich. We learn that a little bit later, but here, like a couple different times, like the guy wearing fine clothes, the guy in the nice clothes, he doesn't call them rich. But the main thing is that, that this churchgoer is then giving them two different seats. Now, maybe this idea of having different seats seems a little bit like odd to us. So let me just call to mind a few times from, from the gospels. You might re recall a situation where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees who desire, out of their arrogance, they desire to have the better seat, all right? So apparently there are some seats that are more honorable than others. Certainly we can maybe perceive this, we wouldn't wanna to be told to sit at someone's feet. So I, I hope this is obvious, but just as a story. Um, and there's other situations too, right? Like uh, the, the disciples at one point jockeying to see who might get the seats of honor alongside Jesus. They even get their mom involved in this, right? Like once my mom gets involved in something, it's pretty serious. So it's like, this has gotten elevated. But my, my point is, is that these, this cease was, it was deeply embedded into the culture that they found themselves in. Now, as I look around here, I think most of these seats look pretty good, but we can relate to this, right? Like I think back to uh, the high school cafeteria, right? Like there were good seats there. I wasn't in them, but I knew that they were there. 
Uh, and, and even within our church gathering, I think about adult Sunday school classes. We walk in there, there's sometimes there's better seats and there's not so good seats. So however it manifests, this is just one example. Verse four is saying that when we show favoritism or depending on your translation, when we discriminate or when we show partiality, that we are becoming judges with evil thoughts. Now remember, we define favoritism as judging people by their outward circumstances rather than their intrinsic merits. In other words, favoritism operates by what we can see rather than by faith. And we're told here that this kind of thinking is evil. So then, if this is what's happening can be perceived with our natural eyes, what would we see if we could see the spiritual realities that are at play in this story? This would be helpful for us as we try and discern where it's happening in our lives. So I wanna show you from the text three different spiritual realities that are at play behind the curtain in this story that Jane pulls back so we can see the real story that's going on, okay? So three different spiritual realities. The first one is that favoritism dishonors God's chosen. Now I get this from verse five. Verse five says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Now notice, this is the first time we've come across the word rich, and who is it used to describe? It's used to describe the poor man, the poor man who can be rich in faith. This is giving us God's definition for what it means for us to be truly rich. The poor are chosen to be rich. The words of Jesus, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke's account of this beatitude does not say poor in spirit, it says poor. There's no pneuma in that passage. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor. He says that the, the, the poor are chosen is what we just read that they are blessed, and this is consistent teaching throughout Scripture. But how do we reconcile that thought of the kingdom of heaven belonging to someone based on their possessions or lack thereof with other consistent teachings of Scripture, such as, I don't know, salvation is by grace through faith alone? Seems like a significant one we have to reconcile with this. Let me see if this helps. Proverbs 22, two says this. It says, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. So what if God, desiring to show his complete sufficiency, has made some with very little so that some of them might become objects of his mercy? And that he might display through them to the world that blessedness does not come from wealth or power, but is found in Christ alone. 
What glorifies the abundant riches that are found in Jesus Christ more than a person who has no food security, no reliable shelter, and yet is completely and utterly happy in Christ? See, some of you have seen this. For some of you, it's your glorious story. And it's a story that it confounds the wise and it shames the strong of this world because it turns our typical wisdom upside down. That somebody can possess absolutely nothing and yet have everything. And it doesn't come at the expense of the rich. You see, what if God, desiring to display his immeasurable value, has made some rich so that through their extreme generosity and love of their neighbor, that he might display through them to the world that he is of greater worth than all the riches or wealth that this world can possibly offer us. So dishonoring anybody based on worldly appearances, it simply just reveals a poverty in our own faith. Faith that God is the one from whom, through whom, and for whom exist all things, including both rich and poor. Which brings us back to spiritual reality number one, is that favoritism dishonors God's chosen in every way that it manifests. Spiritual reality number two. Favoritism follows worldly patterns. Look at how the rich are described here. They're the ones who are dragging them into court, exploiting them, blaspheming the name of the one who they serve, blaspheming God's name. Now, for the original reader, what James, the elder of this early church, is doing is he's moving out of the hypothetical and he's entering into their story, which the way he's doing it would make them in their context pretty uncomfortable. You see, this, if you you weren't with us when we started the series, this letter is written to the very early church. So there's the resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The church grows like crazy in Jerusalem. A deacon, Stephen, rises up, proclaims the gospel, and then persecution breaks out against that church, and they are scattered. Many become extremely poor. They become refugees in places like Phoenicia and Antioch. And throughout all of this, they're being persecuted by the rich and influential, both Romans and also Jews. And now he's trying to show them that they're starting to act like the very world that is persecuting them. Now look, he's not trying to say that every rich person is a persecutor. I hope you can gather that. I mean, even within their midst, we know of several very wealthy benefactors, faithful disciples in the church like Lydia, Susanna, Joanna, who are critical to the early church's ministry and helping to fund it. That's not what he's trying to say. What he's, what he's painting a picture of is he's trying to show them that they've been deceived. You see, the prince of the power of the air. Satan, he is constantly trying to tempt cultures to elevate one group of people at the expense of another. Uh, have Have you seen this? 
So in our example, we have elevating the rich at the expense of the poor, elevating the Jew or the Roman at the expense of the Christian. But now we've lived long enough to see that even just these two, they've been in reverse as well. Elevate the poor, that's the evil twin of communism. Elevate the Christian over everyone else. That was period we call the Crusades. So Satan is constantly at work trying to divide humanity. You see, because he does not operate under our same basic premise that all people are intrinsically valuable because they are made in the image of God. Which is why our godless culture can never give us, when I say us, I mean the church, can never give the church a viable long-term solution to favoritism. The body of Christ needs to lead in this. We are the light. In Christ, we are the light. Now, so far, we've been discussing favoritism with regard to economic class because that's the example that we have in James 2. But we all know that this conversation extends into other areas. It extends into the areas of age. It extends into the areas of gender. It extends into the area of race. So let's talk about race for a minute. Now some of you are like, oh man, it was going so well. <laughs> Why does he have to go there? <laughs> Look, I'm not going there. The word of God goes there. I'm just up here as a follower trying to explain to you what I think God is telling us in this. And it's important for us as the, as the church to engage with him in these conversations, even if they're a little bit uncomfortable. And we can have these conversations differently than what we observe in the world. We should be having these conversations differently than what we observe in the world. So let me just start a conversation here this morning. Obviously, this issue is far more complex and deep for us to tackle in a couple of minutes. But let's just, can we start with a biblical definition for racism? We can simply define that as ethnic partiality or ethnic favoritism. Define racism either as ethnic partiality or ethnic favoritism, all right? So it's basically observing with what can be seen by the natural eyes and drawing a distinction between two different people, giving them two different seats based on something you observe. And instead now of class, we're simply talking about ethnicity. And can we acknowledge for a moment that we have all been influenced with regard to this topic by the world that we live in? And we be honest with each other with that. So let's talk about the impact that this can have. In his book, Talking About Race, Isaac Adams says this about the world's influence on the church with this topic. He says, if we're driven by what the world says success regarding race looks like rather than what the word says faithfulness looks like, we'll be crushed because the world's demands can never be met. That beast is never satisfied. Look, do you, do you see what he's saying? Don't let the godless world drive our thinking. Don't let it drive our conversations. 
We're to let what the word says faithfulness looks like drive our conversations. And the word says do not hold the faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. The church needs to lead in this, but we lead in it, we lead in this conversation with Christ at the center of the conversation. He's not just a factor. You see, this is the salad and the croutons. He's at the center. And then through that, we can become a light and a hope to the world because we're the only ones who serve a God who does not show favoritism. So how do we do this? Well, Unfortunately, in James chapter two, he doesn't give us a case study on that. So he kind of leaves me hanging up here, but that's okay. Jesus Christ did give us the Holy Spirit. So in that Holy Spirit, we can be talking about these types of issues with Christ at the center, even when talking heads on social media or TV are not, right? We're not beholden to the conversation of the day. We're beholden to the word and the word went here. So we could be talking about this. And when I say talking, just, to, just one more point of clarity before we move on. When I say talking, I mean it in the James 1.19 sense, which says, slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. And then we can have a conversation about things like this. Okay, so just moving on. Spiritual reality number one is that favoritism dishonors God's chosen. Spiritual reality number two is that it follows worldly patterns. Spiritual reality number three is that favoritism violates God's law. Let's read in verse eight and nine. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So this point's pretty simple. Favoritism makes us guilty under the law. And don't miss the irony here. What he's saying is that the judges are gonna be judged. But unlike our judging, which is evil, this judging is good and it comes from the only righteous judge and his conviction of us on this matter will also be just. And then skip down with me to verse 12, which says, so speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now this is, this is an interesting little twist that James throws our way here. By using this phrase, the law that gives freedom, he's actually calling us back to something we read a few weeks ago. And if you weren't with us, he gave us this illustration of a mirror and he calls that mirror the law that gives freedom. And he says, if you stop looking into that mirror, you're gonna forget what it's showing you as you get bombarded by all the worldly distractions that are part of this life. So keep looking into this law, to this mirror that is the law of liberty, all right? And he says that this mirror will show us two different things as we look into it. As we look into the law of liberty, it's gonna show us, first thing, is that we are deeply sinful and guilty under the law. Now, at least when it doesn't apply to us, most of us 
long to see justice prevail, right? Like we see a, a murderer or a thief or an abuser, and it's just our natural, through our, the spirit that's in us, it's our natural inclination to want justice in those situations. Now, I had a, um, a, a moment a few weeks ago where this was particularly acute for me when the news broke about the uh, tragedy at Nashville's Covenant School. And so, so it, was a, yeah, it was a tough night. In my time of prayer that night, I prayed two different things. The, the first was for God's love and mercy on the school and the church and the families and all of those who will be affected by this for the rest of their natural lives. And this, the second part of that time of prayer, knowing that the one who committed the murder was now before the righteous throne of Christ, I prayed that the full weight of his righteous wrath would fall upon her and that she would be consumed and go up like smoke. Which is Psalms, Psalms 37, by the way. It, it is right for the righteous to hate wickedness, to desire to see righteousness prevail. Now, as often happens for people who are teaching and preaching the word, in that same time of prayer, the Holy Spirit reminded me that I was gonna be preaching on verses 10 and 11, which say that the murderer and the one that shows favoritism are both convicted under the law. I was pierced. You see, if the law, if the mirror was the moral law only, we would all be without hope. You see that? If you're here with us today and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you might have come in here today thinking that Christianity is primarily about self-righteousness. And it's true that we struggle with that but it is not at the heart of what we believe. At the heart of what we believe is that we are convicted as lawbreakers, not just because we stumble at one point of the law, but because we stumble at every point of the law. Yes. We are justly convicted as lawbreakers and our actions and our thoughts have earned for us not eternal life, but eternal death. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that we have been saved. That's the second thing the mirror is showing us. That's why it's a, the law that gives freedom. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the, the God of this world has blinded, we all come into this world blinded by him, not able to see reality for how it truly is. 
And maybe you came in here this morning thinking that you knew what was really going on in your life. You might have come in here under a vestibular illusion, right? Thinking that you're, you're going to one place when the reality is that you're slowly spiraling towards another. However, God is rich in mercy. And possibly, he's opening your eyes this morning to see life for how it truly is, real reality for those of us. We're not just natural, we're natural and spiritual. Maybe he's opening your eyes to see that reality for the first time. And if that's you, I would strongly encourage you to stop listening to the rest of what I have to say and to talk to him. For those of you who are still listening, I'm gonna assume for a moment that you are believers and have put your faith in Christ. I don't want you to miss the first part of verse 13, which says that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This is, this is a hard passage. We saw a hint of it in James 1.12. We're gonna see it much more overtly next week when James says that faith without works is dead. And just, it's, it's a theme throughout the whole New Testament, but just to show you it's not only James, let me read from 1 John 2, 4, which says, whoever says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. These are hard sayings but I'm not gonna breeze past them and allow you to live under an illusion that some magic prayer you prayed three or four decades ago somehow gives you a pass on these verses. But I know that it sounds like salvation by works. So let me just see if I can give you an illustration to help paint what's really going on here. I'm trying to see if there's some kids in the room. Got a few. All right, so let me ask you kids. You shout it out if you can. Does a caterpillar learn to fly by jumping? <laughs> Warwick has failed our children. <laughs> no, caterpillars don't learn to fly by jumping. My kids said the same thing, don't worry. Um, we're all working at this. Caterpillars don't learn to fly by jumping. They need to be transformed in order to fly. All right, now I'll give you a second. This, is, this question's a little easier. Please shout it out, all right? So once, once a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, does it spend its days flying or crawling on the ground? Here's your redemption. Flying or crawling? Flying, all right, thank you got some help here. Flying, right? So what we're getting here is a picture of justification. We, our good works, the flying, if you're not following along, our good works simply confirm that we've been transformed. They're not the reason we're transformed or how we're transformed. It's just how we live after we've been transformed. It's the evidence of our faith. And so then our good works in the here and now, they simply just confirm the new reality that we're living in. And so now we read, love your neighbor as yourself, and we see it no longer as a weight or a burden, but the very fullness of what it means for us to be alive. So my final encouragement to you today is to live in 
light of the triumph of God's mercy in your life. Don't show favoritism. Let our interactions with each other reflect what we believe, reflect the one in whom our faith is placed. And then as we interact with each other, interact with each other with people who we see, not based on what's visible on the outside, but what we know is true of them intrinsically, that they are of tremendous value because they're made in the image of God and valuable in his sight. Let's let our every word, every facial expression, every conversation, every action reflect this. And this is something not just for us as individuals. We're at the meeting. This is a command for the gathered church, for how we are supposed to live together. And I'm telling you, if we do this, and we can do it, it is possible through the Holy Spirit. If we do this, then LAFC can be a city on a hill with the light of God's mercy on display for all the world to see. As Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So then let us speak and act as those who have received mercy and then with him become participants in the triumph of mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just consumed with the greatness of who you are and the realities of all that you've done throughout history and revealing yourself to us in your word, in each other, through your spirit, Lord. And we just pray that you would fill us with that spirit, that we would live in in light of faith, walk in faith rather than what our eyes distract us into thinking, Lord. And in that way, be conformed into the image of your son. Lord God, we know this is possible because we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, we are gonna respond to that by singing of the triumph of mercy that has been shown to us. The transformation that we have experienced is far more than a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly. We have been transformed from death from the grave into life. If we get to see that the butterfly does not return to the dirt, church, we're not to return to death. So let's stand and bask in the triumph of mercy. Rejoice in who he is. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more.
So this morning, as we were working through James 2, we pulled a few different things out of 2 Corinthians. We were in 4, 4, 5, 7. I want to read you one more verse out of 2 Corinthians. This is 5, 16. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we, we do so no longer. Meaning that they were looking for Christ to come in a way that with their natural eyes, they could observe a glorious king. He didn't come that way, but he showed us the way that the kingdom is really coming. So as we walk this earth and we see people with our natural eyes, we will know that their end may be different just as our Lord Jesus's end ends in glory. And verse 17 says, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This is the reality that can be seen by the eyes of faith. And so I pray as you go back into the places you've been called, the workplace, the family, various places where you spend your time between now and next Sunday, I pray that you would walk with the eyes of faith, not being distracted by things that might be visible to our natural eyes, but with eyes set on Christ alone, you'd be able to see people the way that he does. And this way we can be a light church. So I'll leave you with that. Go in peace. You are dismissed.